Um, middle schoolers are now dismissed to class. I believe they're studying Proverbs. And uh, if you could read for the reading of God's Word, I, that would be wonderful. Um, our scripture reading today is Mark 9, 33 through 50. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. It's God's word. Please pray with me. Lord, we ask that you would teach us what it means to follow the way of the cross, that this morning we'd hear your lessons on discipleship and follow you. Lord, too often we are satisfied with cheap versions of grace. Show us today what it means to accept and embrace costly grace, the kind of grace that took the life of your son and gave us life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so last week, uh, Jesus wrapped up teaching the disciples, um, how he must suffer and die and be rejected again, right? He's been doing this over and over and over again, trying to impress that on them. And of course, they, they just don't seem to get it. Um, they're found once again now rejecting this idea. They were like so many Americans today, embracing a kind of prosperity gospel, a prosperity gospel. Um, a prosperity gospel today teaches that becoming a Christian means that you'll have all kinds of material uh, success uh, and wealth, 
you also get less suffering. Uh, suffering is missing from its message, and so is the way of self-denial. And leaders of this movement wear the latest fashionable clothing and uh, with expensive shoes, and uh, the attention's really drawn on them and the personality, and it's very attractive to people. It's attractive because it communicates high status, right? This is someone who not only has God, but who has wealth and who has just so much approval and um, fame and must be happy. Well, Jesus gives a complete overhaul to a prosperity gospel in our passage this morning. Complete overhaul to this false gospel. And uh, in our passage this morning, he gives us three lessons, I think, on discipleship. So three things we we learn about discipleship. The first thing he says is that a disciple is a servant. So if you're taking notes, you can write that down. A disciple is a servant. And they came to Capernaum, verse 33. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And so Jesus asked them when they get back to the town of Capernaum and they're back in the house, he asked them this direct question. What were you arguing about? What was it? And uh, I can't help but think of the classic family vacation on the way to Disneyland. You know, you're road tripping with your family and the kids are arguing in the back seat, right, about, um, well, one thing that they're always arguing about and one thing they're always asking their parents about is, are we there yet? Right? How many times do you have to hear that? And in the same way, right, the disciples are, are thinking, are we there yet in the kingdom of God? They want glory now. Just like kids want to be there, they want to already arrive, right, um, to, to Disneyland or wherever the destination is. So it's, it's kind of like that. But the disciples find themselves bickering on this road trip with Jesus and uh, arguing about which one of them is the greatest. And we can imagine that Peter and James and Paul I'm sorry, not Paul, Uh, Peter, James, and John, they probably thought very highly of themselves because what happened last week? Where were they with Jesus? Transfiguration, right? On the mountain, they saw transfigured Jesus. They saw Moses and Elijah. Man, they were important. They're the only, only three that saw that. So you can bet that they were bartering and waging that they had some status above the rest of the disciples. Their pride maybe got in the way. What a mess, right? Um, at this point, after, after hearing that, that discipleship is costly and that suffering is coming to Jesus and, and would come to anyone who follows Jesus, right? they're caught up over arguing, who is the greatest? Which one of us is the best? Right? They're missing it. Um, and Jesus talks of surrendering his life. They're talking about having their best life now. He's counting the cost of discipleship. They're counting their blessings, right? And so Jesus tells them, if you want to be first, you have to be last and you have to be least in my kingdom. Greatness in my kingdom is not defined by climbing up to the top and by pushing others down, but it's by humbling ourselves, right, and lifting others up. That's greatness in my kingdom. It's a a complete reversal, a rejection of the way the the world views greatness, the way our, our world talks about people being great. In their day, uh, Jews were obsessed, I would say, with rank and standing. 
Um, they had many writings that talk about the seating and order, uh, the, seed, the seating order in paradise. And so those who are most just would be sitting closest to the throne of God. Right? If you're not as just, you'd be further and further away. So there's a, a pecking order to this. And it even affected right, the way that they um, worshipped in the synagogue. So you'd have like priority seating. Looks like no one's in the front row this morning. So I don't know what that's saying. Maybe you, maybe you should sit in the front row. Um, but um, they had a, a pecking order at the, the family dinner tables, right? Somebody uh, who sat in a certain place meant this person's very high. You know, this person is, is, is worthy. Status. And it's so much like the world we live in, right? Um, try to get into a fancy, fancy restaurant as a normal person, and you're going to be waiting out the line, out the door. There's going to be a huge line, right? But if you know the chef, you know the restaurant owner, or you happen to know a, a famous celebrity, right? You're getting through those doors pretty quickly, right? I don't know. I, I haven't really experienced that, but I'm, I, I'm told that that's what happens when you know people. Um, and I probably shouldn't use this illustration because, uh, I don't know, someone will have a problem with it and judge me. But whatever. I remember um, trying to get into a dance club in, in Vegas, and I was with a bunch of dudes. And you can bet that we were not getting in said dance club without said thousands of dollars to try to get into a place. Of course, if you're female, what happens about getting into a dance club, right? Warmly, you're welcomed in. Come on in, ladies, right? Not gentlemen, unless you're paying, right? The, the ladies are the attraction. Uh, my sister-in-law, she had her bachelorette party uh, weekend uh, there a couple years ago, and, and my, my wife was telling me all about that, and they, they just got free access to all kinds of things, so many free things, you know? I'm like, I have to pay for everything if I go to that place. I'm not going back, right? So anyways, um, the world defines greatness by, by wealth and, 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 and reputation and beauty. Um, if you have any of those things, you deserve to be on top. And, and Jesus is saying greatness, no. Greatness is defined by those who serve and who give. And the greatest example of this greatness is Jesus Christ himself. The one who's going now all the way to Jerusalem, not to be crowned king in the city of Jerusalem, right? But, be, but to be crowned king of kings hanging on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem. And so uh, later Jesus will say, I came not to be served, right? But to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So he illustrates this new definition of greatness by putting a child right in front of them. Verse 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Um, in this time, in this, in this culture, children were not thought of very highly. They were on the lowest rung of society because they were dependent on others. Um, and, and, and so don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. Uh, he's not saying we need to become like children. But he says we need to receive them. A true disciple of Jesus won't ever view anyone as too low for them to serve. God appears to us in the small and the powerless. God loves the low things, right? The weak things. Um, he shows up in the low places. When we see the hungry or the thirsty or the lonely, or the depressed, or the hurting, or the sick, or the imprisoned, our, our response is to be, 
whatever you did for the least of these, right, as Jesus says in another gospel, you did for me. Right? When you serve them, you're serving Christ. God's masks in our neighbor. And so greatness isn't, isn't something that only the gifted or, or the privileged, right, or the wealthy, the elite can obtain. Instead, greatness is something anybody can receive. It's received by believing in Jesus, the greatest servant of all, and following him in the simple tasks of serving others. So a disciple's a servant. That's the first thing we learn about discipleship today. The second lesson we learn, and this is a very important lesson, a disciple is not tribal. A disciple's not tribal. Verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Uh, Does anybody notice which disciple says this? Yeah, John. John, he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's really interesting. I I just find that fun fact. Um, But this is the disciple who's guilty of tribalism. Um, They were just fighting about who is the greatest, and now with this strange exorcist, we see that they need to learn another lesson, right? What exactly is the problem? Let's look again at verse 38. We saw someone casting out demons in your name. Okay, good so far. It says, and we tried to stop him because he was not following whom? Us. Ooh. Huh. Now we see the problem, I think. Wait a minute. Someone is doing something in the name of Jesus, and you're worried that they aren't following you. Right? Who are they supposed to be following? Right? Who is it all really about? Right? The gospel is all about me? You? No, the gospel is all about who? Jesus. Right? The gospel is all about Jesus. And so uh, the disciples are more concerned with making a name for themselves than they are about bearing the name of Jesus Christ. And so we should expect John to say, uh, we told them to stop because they weren't following you, Jesus. But we see here that they have this inflated ego, right? this inflated sense of self, that people should follow them. I mean, they're the original 12 after all, right? They have this sense of entitlement. And it's a warning to us Not to draw too small of a circle, too narrow of a circle around who is in and who is out. Um, One mom tells a story about her daughter. And um, her daughter, who who wanted to go to Sunday school as they were visiting their, um, her grandparents. Her grandparents were religious. Parents, not religious. Don't go to church maybe, maybe once a year. And that's when they visit the grandparents, right? So, so they, they kind of decide, uh, should we take her to Sunday school or not? And they wrestle through that. And so they, they say, finally say, okay, we'll, we'll let her go to Sunday school. Just once a year, um, we'll do that. And so the daughter goes, and she experiences the songs and the crafts, and, and uh, uh, I don't want to mention this, but, and the Bible bucks. Like, there should not be Bible bucks. Chuck E. Cheese, church, don't mix, right? 
but there's Bible books. And, but she's so excited when she gets home, right? She's telling mom and dad, mom and dad, I, I want to earn enough Bible books by memorizing scripture and singing the songs so that my class can have a party, you know, a pizza party. I really want that for them, even though I won't be able to be there because they were, you know, leaving. They were only going to be there one Sunday. And, um, and so uh, she's, she's super excited. Well, the next week, something changes. Um, the daughter's sitting at the dinner table, and she, um, she's mulling over. There's a pocket New Testament that she has, and at the very end, it has the sinner's prayer. And she's really stressed out. You can see that she's distraught. And later that night, her mom is talking to her. And, uh, and, they're, and they're talking about, about things. And the daughter is kind of in this existential crisis. And she's going, you know, Mom, I want to be able to believe what you believe and mom believes and grandma and grandpa believe and the Christian religion believes. She's like wrestling through all this. And then she starts to cry. And so the mom asks what else happened at Sunday school and she starts to tell her and she said, on the first day the teacher asked me in front of everybody if I usually go to church back home. And I said no. And the whole class, the whole class gasped. And the shame that she felt in that moment when the class was gasping was fresh on her face to her mom. By asking that question, it's clear that a line of belonging was drawn. She was clearly on the out. She was not in. And with every Bible buck and scripture memorization, she was trying to work her way back in. The thing about Christianity is that nobody works their way in. Nobody works their way in. All of us are brought in because Jesus worked his way in. And we're given that by grace, right? Anyone who believes in him can belong. The requirements for belonging are not, are not high. Uh, they're not reserved for only a certain group of people or kind of people. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you, be, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. Right? You don't need to know a lot. You don't need to have this amount of money. You don't need to know a certain group of people. You don't need to look a certain way. You just need Jesus. And the thing about the saying from Jesus uh, the one who's not against us is for us, is that there are a lot more Christians out there. There are a lot more allies out there. There are gospel-centered movements and churches, and the Spirit is moving in all kinds of extraordinary ways, and we may not exactly believe every jot and tittle of what everyone else believes exactly the same way, and yet God is on the move. Whoever's not against us is for us. Um, I'll share this with you. Uh, when Redemption Church uh, first was looking at calling me at, uh, to be one of the pastors here, um, this was one of the reasons why I, I said yes. Um, because y'all aren't tribal, <laughs> okay? You're not tribal. Um, with everything that happened back in 2016, um, with all the pain, uh, the, core the core members expressed to me um, a very strong voice of, of support uh, for the fact that we just ended up planning a church a lot earlier than we wanted to. Um, 
And those who were most hurt by what happened were not bitter, but could see the bigger picture that God's kingdom was more important, right? God's kingdom was expanding. And that was amazing. And so, I mean, for people to see that in the midst of so much going on was beautiful to me. That was a huge reason why I said yes. Um, And now that we're uh, a church with all kinds of new people, not just that initial core group of people, um, I hope that we'll maintain that spirit of unity and peace and uh, kingdom-mindedness. Because disciples are not tribal. That's the second thing. Finally, a disciple takes sin seriously. So first, Jesus says that a disciple needs to take sin seriously so that others don't fall into sin because of us. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Uh, Let's stop there for a second and just imagine that picture. Because that's crazy. Um, A person getting tossed into the ocean with a millstone around their neck, sinking to the bottom, that is a horrible way to die. (laughs) That's not a good description. Uh, The Jews generally feared the ocean the sea. Um, So this is really uh, strong imagery. And he's warning the disciples to watch how we live. The Greek word translated as causes to sin is skandalizain, which means to cause to stumble. In this case, it means to destroy someone's faith, um, to lead them astray. And so are we as we look at our own lives, are we engaging in activities that might lead someone else astray? Keep a close watch on yourself. Take sin seriously so others avoid sin. And then he goes on to say, a disciple needs to take sin seriously for the disciple's self. So verse 30, 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes than to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Um, Does anyone think Jesus is being literal here with regard to cutting off your hand or your foot or gouging out your eye? Um, any takers? We can um, open up a butcher shop just like right there, just for no, no takers. Um, funny story. Uh, uh, there was a theologian. His name was Origen, Origen of Alexandria, and he really struggled with sensual desires. And so what happened was, he, I think he read this passage, and he decided that he should be castrated to avoid that sin. So he was. Um, interestingly, not long after that, the Council of Nicaea outlawed. They banned castrations. So we know what the early church thought about that practice to uh, stop someone from sinning. And uh, what Jesus means here is not physical self-mutilation. He means spiritual mortification of sin. Putting to death sin. A thief could cut off his hand, right, because he, he's, he's a thief. He wants to steal. He could cut off his hand and make it much more difficult to steal. But he could still covet his neighbor's stuff, right? 
doesn't get rid of the problem, the root issue. So when Jesus says, cut off a hand or a foot or an eye, he's calling for us to stop doing anything that leads us to sin. Uh, the hand is a metaphor for what we do. The, the feet are a metaphor for where we go. The eye, a metaphor for what we look at, what we watch. What are we taking in in the world around us? Where are we going? What kinds of places should we maybe not be at? Um, what kinds of things should we not be watching that are leading us to sin? You're either killing sin or sin is killing you. No other option. And so it's better to practice, Jesus is saying, some self-denial than to take your sins with you to a place called Gehenna. Uh, that, is, that is hell, the eternal place where worms eat you forever, and the Bible describes as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, not a pleasant place. Um, Gehenna was actually a place that was located outside of the city of Jerusalem, and it was like a garbage trash heap. It was a dumpster of waste, and it was disgusting, and worms were there. Um, so, great picture there. Um, verse 48, where it says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, it's a saying that comes directly from the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. And we heard it in the call to worship. Isaiah 66, verses 22 to 24, it says, For as the new heaven and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come worship before me, says the Lord. And they shall go out and look at the dead bodies of the people who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, see there it is, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. These verses share God's promise and his call of God's people to worship him and to praise him in the midst of the reality that there is evil in this world, but all evil will be vanquished. Evil will be destroyed. It won't win. And so Jesus goes on, verse 49, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. So we notice this statement, everyone will be salted with fire. Um, if we want to understand this, we need to um, understand temple sacrifices in the Old Testament. And so the temple sacrifices would use salt. Um, if you're taking notes, Leviticus 2, verse 13, Exodus 30, verse 35. Salt tells this story of sacrifice. Sacrifice. Uh, so by using this word, Jesus is saying each disciple is to be a willing sacrifice. Paul puts it like this in Romans 12, 1, which if you've taken discipleship class at Redemption Church, you will probably have memorized or you will memorize at some point. So take that class. Um, but I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Anyone, anyone want to finish it? This is your spiritual worship, exactly. So fire and salt are, are, are symbols of the cost of discipleship. Uh, to be a disciple according to Jesus means he has total claim over your life. A sacrifice is either consumed or it's worthless. That's it. And so to be a pleasing sacrifice, be a pleasing sacrifice to God. A disciple who, who takes up the cross and follows the way of the cross, who encourages the faith of other believers instead of destroying, putting down faith, and, and who avoids sin in his own life is a living, pleasing sacrifice. You have the ability to 
bear difficulty for Christ because Jesus suffered redemptively for you. At the beginning of the sermon, I talked a little bit about status. Um, Well, in Jesus, you get a status that is far greater than any other status you can be given in this life. Far greater than the world can ever imagine with wealth and possessions and beauty and whatever else we put in there. It's the status of being a disciple. Of being counted as one who has no more sin because Jesus was sinless. Being counted as one who is a son and is a daughter because Jesus was the perfect son for you. That you are great in God's eyes because of the greatness of the cross. I I personally, I love how uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he puts it in his book. It's called uh, The Cost of Discipleship. He's comparing cheap grace and costly grace. And then he says this. He says, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift that must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the son of the life of his son. You were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. So you can be at peace with one another. You can have salt in yourselves because God is at peace with you through the death of his son. Jesus was crucified for you. You're alive because of him. Follow him. Let's pray. Lord, discipleship is very, very costly. It seems so hard to follow you. It seems like there are so many obstacles in this life. There's so many temptations that lead us away from you. Even good things that we want. And Lord, all this talk about self-denial is really hard because... We live in a world that does not care an ounce about self-denial, wants self-preservation and self-promotion and self-gratification. That's what we want when we really look at it with our own hearts honestly. And yet, Lord, you don't ask us to do anything that you yourself haven't already done in your son. that Jesus himself paid the ultimate price, bore the ultimate cost to preserve our lives, to save our lives, to give us life. Lord, we thank you for your costly grace in your son Jesus. 
And we ask that your gospel would motivate us and would move us into places where we can love and serve our neighbors as ourselves. We can be salt in this, this world. That you would preserve us, Lord, that our saltiness would not go away. And we'd have life everlasting in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Thank you.